You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Todd Sullivan. As an entrepreneur, his ventures had been funded by Excel Partners, Lightbank, Great Oats Ventures, New Enterprise Ventures, CSA Partners, Detroit Venture Partners, and various angel groups. He is a private investor and venture partner, has had the honor to invest in entrepreneurs who are developing solutions to improve how business and individuals work, connect, transactions, and perform. He is now the founder and CEO of ExitWise, where he helps business owners hire and manage the best teams of MA experts from their global network of industry-specialized investment bankers, MMA attorneys, and tax accountants to minimize the risk of a failed engagement and to maximize the outcome for every client. On today's episode, we talk about when there is a timeline with a goal to get acquired, how does that impact the operations of a company? What is the best way for a founder to mentally prepare for an exit? How does the sale complexity change with the dollar amount involved in the transaction? What areas do sellers seem to have the most confusion over in the sales process and more? All right, let's begin this episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. All right. Now, I'm super excited about this week on the Silicon Valley podcast. We have Todd Sullivan here, who's, well, his background is second to none. I'm really excited for this. And actually, the longer I talk to Todd, the more I realize how many similar connections we have. And even to past guests on this show and his show, he's got a great podcast too. I recommend everyone checking it out. But you know, Todd, before we go on the questions, can you give us a little bit of background of your career up until this point? Yes. And first, Sean, thank you for having me. Like your podcast is the ones that we learn from. So we're we're putting it on and we think we're giving education. But like I was very excited when you called to have us on. So yeah, a little bit about my background, right? I think I was born in an entrepreneurial family. Actually just did a podcast on my dad talking about that growing up in that entrepreneurial family. He was also a professional athlete. So I went to college really to play hockey and ended up graduating and trying out with the San Jose Sharks and played a year in the minor leagues. And I wasn't very good. So I got traded a lot and ended up in lots of different cities. So so it was a really fun time. But I think I realized that this was not going to be for me and wrote my first business plan on those bus trips. And after that first year of playing hockey and realizing that is not going to be my career, I, I started a first business. We, my brother started it with my brother. We built and sold something out of the attic of his fraternity house. And it took about 22 months, lots of smoke and mirrors around the product that we had. We ended up selling it to one of the kind of largest sports conglomerates in the world. And that had a really interesting life. And since then, I started three other companies, more on the tech side than the consumer product side, funded by venture capital firms and sold all of them, sold the last one in 2015. And then just really stepped back and said, how can I give back to my fellow founders, right? I've made a lot of mistakes and I'd love to be able to transfer some of that knowledge. And that is really the impetus to where what we're doing today is really about giving founders the upper hand when it comes to M&A, which is generally a black box for a lot of us who have never been through it before. So hopefully that's helpful. With each of those transactions, I'm really curious from that first sale of 22 months to then the second and third and fourth, 
what was your lessons that you took with you from each of those transactions? Because I'm guessing the first one, it was kind of almost deer in the headlights. What's going on here? I'm not sure. And then that last one was, hey, this is the steps we have to take. Here's how we prep for it. So what was that first transaction like that after that 22 months? That's really a good question. And I would love to look back and say, boy, I learned a lot from the first one and I was better on the last one. But I think you learn different things on each one. So on the first one, we had an M&A expert on our team. They weren't an investment banker and they helped bring buyers to the table. And we ended up transacting and being really happy with that transaction, working for the company and basically getting an MBA on how a business is built because we didn't really have a company. We had a product and that product now was in the market globally and we got to see sales and how the product was manufactured and assembled and distributed. So to us, that was it was a fantastic outcome. However, I do take a big lesson from it in that the broker that we had on that deal really didn't know our acquirer. And if they had known their our acquirer, they would have realized that we had a partnership, a strategic partnership with the Amerigroup and that the Amerigroup was paying a lot in licensing to us for our technology and decided, hey, we want to just buy this company. If our broker knew that buyer really well, they would have realized that they were for sale as well. And we were the last kind of dangling problem to get solved before the Amerigroup could sell off this business unit. So imagine if you had that insight going into this transaction, that's a lot of leverage. And so today we take that lesson into everything that we do at ExitWise, that when we assign or help you decide on the investment banker that's going to represent you, they have to know every buyer in and out. They have to transact. They have to have insight into who you're going to be talking to like nobody else. And so I think that was the biggest lesson is we could have 10x to this outcome if we knew that we were the linchpin in a billion dollar sale, right? So that was one and I could go through them. But I think in the last one, probably the lesson for me is that we took on venture capital for that deal. And I think a lot of founders find themselves in this position of, hey, we're not going to be the unicorn that this venture capital firm and we had multiple that are looking for. And so we'd kind of like some capital back. We'd like our time back. We want to bet on something bigger. And so it was a lot of pressure to say, hey, you need to create an outcome. And for me, I wasn't quite ready, right? I said, like, there's a lot of growth here. I'm not going to take more dilution. I can grow another 18 months. I can create more value. But it wasn't the trajectory that our venture firms were really looking for. And so at the board level, we said, look, the decision we're going to all make here is to find, create a liquidity event. And so I think that was kind of the learning is like understanding really who you're partnering with and knowing that the business model of venture, right? It is what it is. And they've got to service their limited partners and run their model. And sometimes that can fall out of or continuity with what a founder wants. In that transaction, I think we did a great job. We had an investment banker. We ran a process. We generally knew the couple of companies that were competitors that were really interested in what we had. And we played them off against each other. We had all our ducks in a row. We knew, I knew at that point what it was going to take. I would say, yeah, I think that's probably a good start, a good place to stop. Okay. So you mentioned ExitWise, which is your current company. And we're going to dive into that a lot later because, well, one, the audience has to find out what you're doing and how you're helping so many people. But going back to the, the transaction itself, there's something that you mentioned that I thought was very interesting. And that was doing the due diligence on the buyer. I think so many companies, they don't actually do that. I think companies, when they raise capital, don't actually do due diligence on the investor when they sell. How can one go about 
kind of research and doing due diligence on that person sitting on the other side of the table from them? Yeah, again, it really is an ideal question. I'm going to answer it a little bit differently. When we do it today, it really is for our clients. It's really the investment banker that is driving the process can already tell you, hey, I've sold three companies to this group of buyers before, and we can go talk to my former clients. And that's one thing I would really recommend, right? If you have inbound interest, we see that a lot. Founders call us, hey, Todd, this public company just offered $20 million for my business. What do I do? Well, in trying to do some background on that company, talk to the other founders that have sold to them before. And a lot of times, right, you have to kind of get through the company speak because it, particularly if they've been purchased by a private equity firm and they're part of that platform and they want to see growth, they're going to sell you. And so you got to kind of get through that. But I think that's a really good source. It's both your investment banker who has sold to these companies before and they know how they behave post-transaction. They know how they're going to behave in due diligence. They know what they're looking for, frankly. I think that is step one. And then step two, you got to do it yourself. You got to be talking to those that have walked in your shoes before you. And then with your transactions, when you sold your companies, I mean, the first one, I'm guessing there probably wasn't too much preparation of the company before sale, but for the other ones, or maybe even that first one, how did you go about preparing? What process did you take to prepare the company for acquisition? I think for us, particularly on the last three, because we were funded by venture capital firms and we were very used to like quarterly reporting, we really had financials in order, all that kind of the HR house was in order. We knew what due diligence would look like. So ahead of the game, when we were positioning ourselves to sell, we had our data room really set. And then working through with a banker to say, hey, what are the pieces that are missing? What are the likely questions? What are the buyers really going to be interested in? Right. And when I, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking of all the transactions that we've done at ExitWise and the stories that pop out of that. I don't think you can have your data room. I mean, you know this, right? You're not going to have it 100% ready because there are going to be so many questions that are coming from left field from one buyer and right field from the other that you're going to respond to. I think so having your house in order kind of legally and certainly financially, then I also think it's really your team. So having that CFO role, whether you've outsourced it or you have it internal, that is a heavy lift. And when you leave that to a CEO, you get a couple of things. You get a lot of frustration from that CEO. And that CEO is being essentially interviewed through this whole process by a buyer. How well are we going to work with this person? And we elevate them within our organization. So it's really important that person looks really good. And you don't want them to be distracted and have their business start to go south because then you're just handing the negotiation power over to the buyer. Right. So, yeah, I think you have to your team has to be ready to go through this kind of this experience, which could last six to nine months. Speaking of team and experience, how does well, how does this whole process impact the operations of a company? I mean, getting acquired or going through that process, I would guess you're throwing a wrench in it. It disrupts everything. But you know, from your experience, how is it? I think everyone was different when you're going to go through this there's an emotional element and it's like a click. Hey, I am now going to sell the business. And you are now envisioning what life could be like when this transaction happens, all those things. And I think you naturally take your eye off the ball of growing the business. And every banker will tell you, please do not do that. Focus, focus, focus on the growth of your business. We've got to hit the projections. I'm trying to think back. What was the specific question around each transaction? I guess just how does operations change or get impacted when you're looking to sell your company? 
Well, okay, I'll, I'll give an example with a spirit shop, the last company that we sold. We had a pretty significant team, but we were going to be be acquired by a competitor. And that competitor largely had all of the functions that we had internally. And so it was, hey, when do we have assurance that this business is actually going, this transaction is actually going to happen? And who do we tell and when so we can continue to employ people while they're looking for their next job? Because that's, I mean, when you go through this battle, right, of building a company, you get so close to the people that have helped you get there. It says really on the top of your mind of, are they going to be in, in the best possible spot or at least not be hurt by going through this transaction? So I think you, you're operationally, you're thinking about the future of all the people. There are certainly contracts. And for us, we drove a lot of revenue in multiple companies through strategic partnerships. And when you're setting up those contracts with those partners, understanding whether they're transferable in a change of control transaction is really important. And so operationally, I'm going to some of these strategic partners and making sure that if a transaction were to happen, that they understand the value will still be there for them on the other end and making sure that I can assign those contracts. I don't think we don't take the gas off. We never did on marketing. We tried to think about we have to grow because we knew if we could beat our projections, then that would be an arrow in our quiver when it came to negotiating around the edges of the LOI. So, I, yeah, I think I'm kind of rambling. I don't know that there was a whole lot that was different. You got to run your business to continue to grow. You'd mentioned marketing right there. You had some really great success at TechCrunch Disrupt, one of your companies. Can you talk a little bit about how important marketing and exposure is to a company's early success? Yeah. So the TechCrunch experience, I think it was called the TechCrunch 50 at the time. So it wasn't quite TechCrunch Disrupt. It was 2009. And I threw a business plan over that I had written in business school and I made a video and I had kind of the whole kind of conceptual product designed. I could walk you through a demo. It was a mobile application. And I got this call that said, hey, you're one of the TechCrunch 50. I'm like, what? I didn't even know really what that meant. And so then you go through this drinking from a fire hose experience and you end up on stage knowing that this is being streamed to, I think it was like 15,000 people are watching the event. And from there was every venture capital firm wanted to get to know you, right? Because somehow this marketing effort had elevated you into a new form of credibility, right? Which to me, for us, I didn't feel was particularly deserved, right? We didn't have revenue. We didn't have customers. It was very much like, hey, we're launching this idea essentially on stage. And for me, it was just an incredible experience. I mean, Reed Hoffman, Sean Parker, and Dick Costolo were my judges. Like to me, that I'd only kind of read about that. I'm coming from Michigan, landing in Silicon Valley, and this is what I get to see. It was an incredible gift. And so from a marketing perspective, now what I'm really doing is meeting all the venture capitalists. That was fantastic. Just there, you could see the willingness to say, okay, we understand what you have is conceptual. What do we do next? Rich Wong at Excel was particularly inviting and helpful where he's whiteboarding stuff and we're going to change the name of this. And I think this is what you should end up going to do. And ultimately we got that business funded by Excel because they'd opened up kind of a seed round. And I got one of their EIRs to work on that project. Back to your question about marketing. Having gone through that 
amazing experience in Silicon Valley. I kind of think of it as the Disney world of entrepreneurship. And I would love for everybody to be able to see what that environment is. And I often, I'll go off on a tangent for a second. I tell people when you get there, everybody is way smarter than you. They all have your idea and they're all better funded and they are surrounded by smarter people. And basically it is the most competitive environment that you're going to fall into trying to build something that you don't want to tell anyone about because you think you have like whatever the gold. And so it's incredible learning experience. And I loved it. Now, backing away from that, I think it's so much more important in a business to really understand product market fit, having a customer and understanding, yes, this is a, what is a value to them and building towards that customer and then getting your unit economics, right? Right. What are they willing to pay for? And can I scale this? And before you're trying to like say, Hey, look at me, everyone, you got to get a, you got to get kind of get your economic house in order and your product house. And that might just be me. And it may be why my companies got funded by venture capital firms, but ultimately weren't the right fits. We we're much more focused on business fundamentals than high growth and marketing. Question there. When does a company turn from or when does it go from an idea and pivot into an actual company? When you have a customer, right? I mean, that would be my answer. Somebody that's willing to freaking pay for it, right? And so I'm like a big believer in starting a company. So if a founder's ready to start something, they got an idea, go get a customer first and build towards that customer. Give them an incentive to make that product work because you're just building a product at that point. And I think there's a big distinction in a company, quote unquote company, that is really just a product that's in market as opposed to going concern, a business that is going to flourish. And it's a different skill set to find kind of a product market fit and then grow a business. And I'm also curious, you said that people that excel were whiteboarding ideas with you. All these venture capitalists, it seemed like they, they wanted you to succeed. They wanted to help. But at the same time, you'll hear stories of founders going, they were there and then suddenly they disappeared. I mean, where do you see people or Silicon Valley wanting companies to succeed, helping them to grow? And when they just let them kind of die in the sunset? Yeah. So I want to not get in trouble. <laughs> but I think there's definitely a place for venture capital. If you have the luxury of selecting who you're going to work with, which you should, right? You got to know that they're essentially a team member. They got to be bringing more than money, right? And so some of the big firms can help you hire and they can help you with the legal side of the business. And maybe there's some strategic, even customers within the portfolio that could make a lot of sense to justify, yes, I want this person on my board. So it is valuable for companies that really want to swing for the fences because that is the goal. We've heard a lot and we see it in M&A, right? In 2021, it was just like, all we want is high growth. We don't care how much you lose. As long as AR is growing, you're going to have enormous multiple on those dollars. And now it's like anyone that is profitable is the bell of the ball and everybody's going to chase that. And what we see, right, is we had founders from venture capital firms almost every day saying like, I've got a lot of revenue, but i built an organization where we are just hemorrhaging money, right? We're doing things that we probably should have outsourced. And they know that they either have to do this quick pivot to right size the business to just to survive because now their venture firms who have been saying, we're there for you, we're there for you. They're not there for you, right? They're gone. They're, those The checkbooks are closed. So we're seeing a lot of that. And I think that's something I've been through it multiple times. So you get an awareness of their role and what you're really looking for from a founder for a venture partner on your team. When did the conversations start of, hey, it's time to look to get acquired? And what were those conversations like with your investors, with your co-founders, with people? Okay, so I really love this topic because I think I was very ignorant around the subject of 
ROI? What is our company worth? And I frankly wish I could walk into every board meeting every quarter and say, hey, look, the market is this way. Here are the multiples on our business. We have grown in this particular way and we're worth X today. And if we were all in this room to take stock of what our personal ROI is and translate that to the external stakeholders are not there, should we raise more money or should we sell today? It's Is it Series A or M&A, right? It could be Series B or Series C, but I like it because it rhymes. But being able to understand, right, what your personal outcome looks like. Because as founders, we are dumping so much of our effort and time, things that we can't get back into this. I feel like I'm forgetting your questions going on these rates, but when the time to sell, is it being made in that boardroom? It should be being made based on that ROI calculation at any given point in time. In my experience, let's see, I would say I'm kind of thinking through the list. With CrowdZone, we did a strategic partner with CBS. And CBS saw something on the horizon that they felt like they needed to control the product that we had built for them. And they said, hey, we got to buy this. And they came in and bought it. It just, it made sense. And we told our investors, hey, this is not going to be a big win. And that was Excel partner at the moment. But we said, but we're going to divide the company in two. We're going to, CBS only wants to buy this effort. And we're going to run the other side of the business that we think has even bigger upside. And the board says, great. And then we return capital to them. We get some cash to ourselves and we can decide, do we grow the business with that cash? So that one was kind of just opportunistic. I think with Betterfly for that one, I was really brought in by a venture capital firm to take over an existing company that they thought was going to go out of business. And what I ended up doing is saying, hey, look, if we want to do something, we have to do something totally different. There are a couple of assets here that we could use, but we got to invest. And I think what we could do is turn this around and give you a return in the next 18 months. And they said, okay, please go do that. So that was kind of pre-planned of how we were going to try to provide that liquidity event. And we ended up selling it in nine months and it sold again to Microsoft. And then the last one, again, it's like you're in a boardroom and the board is saying, hey, this particular case, you're the only company that we have that makes money and we need to put a win on the board, right? So you know how to sell businesses Will you go sell this one. And so that it was that debate, right? And it's not that I didn't have the voting power. It's, hey, like when you take on a financial partner, you take on any partner, you're responsible for everyone. And so it isn't just your opinion of what of what should happen. And I said, all right, let me explore the landscape. And we ran that process and we said, yep, this is a fantastic opportunity. And everybody said, don't do anything but that. Go do that. And so the, you you bring your own opinions, certainly, to the discussion. But ultimately, that, that was a board decision. When the board comes with a decision like that, or maybe you've had a conversation with your co-founder, how does one mentally prepare themselves for an exit? I think that's such a great question because now living on the, on maybe not the other side, because we're still sitting side by side with a founder in every transaction. But I think historically, and correct me if I'm wrong, Sean, the dissatisfaction that founders feel after selling a business, it's like 70% of them feel like, Ugh, why did I do this? This isn't what I was looking for. And I think that has to do with emotionally planning to know what your life is going to be like post-transaction. And so what, and I know we'll talk about ExitWise at some point, but what we do to combat some of that is to say, hey, founder, let's start talking with multiple private wealth managers and understand here's your valuation, here's your cap table, Post-tax, 
you are likely to see $13 million in your own pocket post-tax. Does that achieve everything that you want to achieve? Let's start talking about that. You've got kids to go to college. You want a ski house. You want to be able to retire. You want to do this kind of philanthropy. And when you understand what that person really wants in this particular transaction that I'm talking about, it turned out that 15 million is what they needed to achieve every goal. And so we say to them, so, so we can do two things. We can wait a little bit longer until your growth rate really accommodates that outcome, or we can go to market and know you have to be at the high end of the range and you're going to say no until 15 million is in your pocket. Right. And by the way, it isn't as black and white as that as because in that transaction that we did very recently, and I was actually hoping to come and do this with you in person because we just sold it on Monday and it was out in Silicon Valley. There's the rolled equity component. So her outcome is going to surpass what she needed, but on day one, maybe not. So I think that if you can really understand what you're, you would like your life to be like, and some people want to buy another business, want to do it again, right? Get that planning ahead of time and know what you're going to say yes to, no to, how you're going to use the money, how it's going to affect your family. It's critically important. And I'd love to tell one little story that really just forced me to say, I have to do this, right? The reason we exist is to say, founders, you've never done this before. Please let us shepherd you through the process so you make fewer mistakes. In one of our earliest transactions, I think it was deal of the year for us a couple of years ago, we had a founder that had not planned out his future. And in that transaction, we sold the business for 40% above market, right? So money is not the issue for this individual. Almost wasn't beforehand, but this is generational wealth, multi-generational wealth that we've created. And he ended up getting the threat, not the actual cease and desist, but a threat from the buyer to stop coming to work. This person was so 70 years old, but didn't know what to physically do with themselves during the day. So they kept going to work and they changed the locks and he'd bang on the door and he'd say, you people used to work for me. It was like crazy town. And so that was the person's baby. They grew that business for 40 years and hadn't planned it out. So at that moment, I was like, we can't let founders go through that emotional distress. It's hard enough selling the business. Then afterwards, what are you going to do? So we really like to help them think about that. Sorry, that was so long winded, but it's really important to know what you're going to do. No, I, for our listeners out there, Take that one question, listen to it multiple times. I cannot stress enough the ups and downs, the emotional rides, the amount of information that was just conveyed was amazing. There was a comment there about that founder having some money and a rollover. Check out Adam Coffey's episode. He talks about second bites of the apple, second and third bites of the apple. But okay, going forward, your track record is perfect in every way. But from rumors in that, what are most likely things that could possibly kill a deal? Before we started ExitWise, and I don't, I said that to you, right? That it is fair. We're, we have no failures at ExitWise. In order to really learn this process, I ran an experiment and I told founders, hey, I will help you through this, but I have no idea what I'm doing, right? So, but what I do know is there is an investment banker somewhere in the world that has sold your company before, and I'm going to find three of them and we're going to pit them against each other and we're going to get you the absolute best one because that de-risks your transaction. They're going to know who your buyer is. And we did that. And I found an absolute, absolute all-star that was delivering an outcome that was so far beyond what we projected the business to sell for that everybody was happy. All the documents signed, all due diligence done. We would have signed that deal, but the seller, one of their parties went on vacation, came back eight days after kind of the big news of COVID hit. 
and they froze that the investment committee for that private equity firm said, hold on. So uh, lots of things can ruin a deal. And that was before I was doing exit wise, but that was awesome aerospace manufacturing business with a lot of software intertwined. It was going to be an amazing outcome and just feel terrible that that one COVID kind of decimated that industry for a long time. Right. So still a client we will come back. We'll get it done at some point, but just we're hundred percent aside from that. So I think the things that I think I told you, right, when you asked me this question, like I'm going to go call a bunch of my investment bankers. And I think what it is, right, that the expectations of a founder, right, from the very beginning really need to understand what is the value of this company. And if you can't be comfortable selling within the valuation that multiple investment banks tell you where you, where this will land, then it's something that you shouldn't do. And what we do see is founders going, yeah, but you know what? We I don't think we're getting value for this over here. And we grew during this period. I'm like, yeah, you were supposed to grow. And there's this, oh, I got the first offer. I'm like, yeah, that wasn't a real, that was an indication of interest. That's the high end of the range. They're thinking you have something that you don't, right? So I would say to founders, you really have, when you're in a process and you commit to understanding the value that is right for you, if you start wavering and you want 3X of that, it's just not going to happen and the transaction is going to fail. I would say that in due diligence, red flags pop up, right? And they don't have to be things that the founder knew about. They could be just, ah, we didn't even understand that. We didn't know that. The ones that you know about and you hide from your investment banker, that is just on you, right? Because the buyer is going to go through everything. They're going to learn everything. And the worst thing you can do is hide something from your investment banker so they don't have an answer for it. Our teams can develop the right talk track around a real problem in the business. And if you don't give us the opportunity to do that, buyer's going to see it and go, okay, we're going to pay 30% of that purchase price This th or this thing's done. So I think that does a little bit. I think there's certain, we don't see it, but some of the bankers have told me that buyers will come and not have their kind of capital really you know, under their control. And so when they do all all the work and they say, yep, we can pay this. They ultimately, their investor group says no to a deal. And I think that really comes down to knowing who you're selling to, right? So our bankers, everyone in our network, they don't go into it without knowing those buyers. So they can really kind of assess who has the capital, who doesn't. And then I think there's a little bit of retrading at the end. We're in one, I was in a management meeting this week and we have one where you could see the buyers looking, they're looking for something. They're going through all the financials and our client, their CFO was just amazing. And I hope she hears this. I told her she was amazing, but every hole they tried to poke, she was like, nope, pops it up on the screen. It's this and this. And you could see them, ah, oh, right. They're looking for ways to poke holes in the valuation that they gave us in the LOI. And so I think if you falter with your financials in that due diligence period in those management meetings, you're giving them ammunition to come back with a reduced price. I have had friends that had blocking rights from certain investors. I haven't experienced this, but I did have one friend. He was at the goal line, ready to sell the business. And one of the investors said, I really want you guys to build something bigger. The return that you're giving me, it's great, but it doesn't move the needle for us. I want you to either go away or be my grand slam. And so I'm going to vote against this. And he had a blocking right. And ultimately that deal, it was really big public deal. Ultimately, they found a economic way, right, to make that investor happy to get that transaction done. But I think like you got to know that everybody on the team is aligned. I'm sorry to ramble, Sean, but we, this is such an important point. I think that when you say everybody on your team, it's not just the management team, but it is the financial stakeholders, your investors. And we have seen deals. We have one that's going to transact over $600 million. And the investors are saying, wait, this is one of our big winners. Can we put $50 million more into this business? 
And then you talk to the founder, like, okay, what are you going to have to do then in order to have the same ROI? You're going to have to grow the business, hit these more milestones, take on additional risk. And who's your buyer now? You're almost a public company at this point, right? So do you want to be a public company? So I do think that interaction with your investor can cause problems if you're not really upfront of what you're trying to do. And I would say that here's the last point that I did a little bit of research on is that making sure that your M&A attorneys are really good and that's what they do. Because if you're going to try to use your divorce attorney, right? If you're going to try to use a family attorney, they're going to fight for the wrong things, right? Yes, they know how to do contracts, but not M&A contracts. And they may not be protecting you the right way. And we've seen, particularly on on the buyer side, less sophisticated buyers bringing attorneys in that just don't know M&A and they can ruin a deal for the buyer. So I would make sure that not only do you have that right representation sitting in that legal seat, but also they work for you. So when you're good enough, go and get a deal done, right? You need to know when to pull your advisors back and just get something done. Speaking of advisors and who's on your team, deals that are maybe 1 million size versus, I mean, you mentioned 600 million size, the complexity, how does that change with the deal size amount? Okay, so I think businesses, and you've seen it too, you see the whole range, Businesses that are selling for under $10 million, for us, it's not where our model works particularly well, right? Because like I was a hockey player, right? And Connor McDavid, Connor McDavid's the investment banker that I'm going to put on your team. And if you want to win the Stanley Cup, right? You got to put him on the team. You got to put Bergeron. You got to put, I can pull Gretzky out of retirement, put him on your team, but you're going to pay those fees, right? Because they are elite and they want to take on bigger deals. And so for us, I think there is some more simplicity in doing smaller deals. I think you hear a lot of times, smaller deals are just as hard as big deals. The process is similar, but there's usually less data to have to go through and there are fewer people. So I would say under 10, there is, as long as your house is in order, those can, those due diligence periods I see moving more quickly. It's not to say that we haven't done below a 15 million is really kind of a cutoff for us. We have done those deals for sure. I think the level of complexity comes in when, particularly in software where they're auditing code and they're looking at all kind of legal compliance and there's just multiple due diligence efforts going on, it feels like almost simultaneously. So lots of people involved. And I think people kind of slow that that process. I bet you'd speak to that better. We've certainly done the range. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. From the founder side, what's the best way for them to prepare, coach them or talk to them about working with their advisors for a sale? So I think one of the reasons we exist is that founders... Well, Todd, why don't you just go in, just talk to us about ExitWise. Give okay. us a little bit more information on that, then go into the answer. Okay. Right. So with ExitWise, we're really the largest network of boutique industry-specific investment bankers in the world. So we have investment bankers that are on the platform in pretty much every industry, and we have multiple. So the idea is when I say they're on the platform, they're waiting for us to bring a deal that is right in their strike zone where they will say to me, and I use this phrase, have you seen the show Billions, right? So yeah, Bobby yeah, Axel- I love that family. Jeez. Yeah. Well, so with Billions, Bobby Axelrod is having a meeting with Dollar Bill and Dollar Bill says, you know, Bob, we shouldn't do this deal. And he says, how certain are you? And he says, I am not uncertain. And then it goes to this scene where he's climbing under gate and he's counting inventory and he's realizing this company is really in trouble, right? So he's getting information that no one else has. When we go through the investment banking search for a founder, we are looking for 
hey, are you ready to do this deal? You've done five others like it. You have the capacity. Am I going to get you leading the charge? What's the valuation? Okay, that fits. How certain are you that you're going to get this deal done? And they look at you and they say, I am not uncertain. And they know something they can't even tell you. And that is the conviction that you're looking for. So at ExitWise, that's what we're essentially doing is we're surrounding every founder with their personalized M&A dream team. It starts out with the investment banker. We can bring in quality of earnings, M&A attorneys, tax account accounting, private wealth, deal insurance, anything that team needs to execute on the transaction that founder deserves. That's why we have zero failures. Zero, right? In an industry that can fail 70% of the time, really it is investment banking is not a local service. It is an industry expertise. So I think to your question, we are Telling that founder, you are, if you have a great company, you're inundated by calls from investment bankers, private equity firms, buyers of all types, and you don't know what to do. We can take a lot of that noise away and guide you to say, one, should you be thinking about selling your business? Let's understand what your ROI is. Like I think I told you today, great, unbelievable banking, cybersecurity company came in making a buttload of money. It's awesome. And I'm saying, well, like, yeah, you're thinking about it today, but what's the next milestone? How far away is that is? You have to raise capital to do it. What are the multiples in this industry? I can give you a range of tell you what I think our bankers are going to do because we're also selling other fintechs right now. But let's find the top three investment bankers. I know who they are. Let's get them on the phone and tell you what you should be doing over the next six months to maximize your exit. And it may be you're setting yourself up to sell two years from now. Because the last thing I want to do is tell a founder you should sell so people make fees, right? It is such a personal decision. You should have all the information in front of you before you make the decision that I'm going to go to market and sell my business. So first, it is about you know getting you really smart about what your business is worth and could be worth at different stages of growth. And I can tell you the best investment bankers in the world in a very specific industry can tell you that and they know something that none of us know. They'd make amazing board members. I wish I knew this when I I was building my companies because the insight is incredible. I don't know. Did I answer the question? I mean, that is why we are here. I want to give every founder a new unfair advantage in M&A because you got to believe me, everything is going against you. You don't know what you're getting into. And so our name, Exit Wise, right? That brand, we lead really with the wise. We want to get you as smart as you possibly can about the full M&A process, as well as your company today and what it could be and what you're really selling. And I can't do that. The guys that, you know, my partner built and sold a billion dollar company, right? Really understand scale. When we have other people that have built and sold companies, you will never talk to somebody that hasn't walked in your shoes. We have all built and and sold companies been through that M&A process. And even us will tell you like, look, we don't know your industry well enough, but we have the three magic men and women that can tell you everything about what buyers are thinking about your business. And that is so empowering to give to founders, right? So you can tell, like, we just love what we do. Uh, do you have any stories or that you can share with us? Leave out names or change yep. names or that. But if you have yeah. a story, please share. So, um, I mean, we're selling businesses all the time. Like I said, we sold one on Monday. Here's a really fun story. So a founder calls me and he says, Hey, Todd, I've been in business for 11 months and a public company just called me and offered me $5 million for my business. He's just like, I don't know what to do with that. What do I do with that? And so I'm like, okay, well, 
What do you want? What are you looking to do in your life with this business? How tied are you to it? Do you want to entertain a conversation like that? Or do you want to put your head back down and keep building your business? Because you are on a rocket ship. We can all see it, right? And that's why you're getting this call. He's like, well, do you think they pay more than five? And I'm like, yeah, go say no. Tell them, no, sorry, I'm building a rocket ship. And maybe let's talk in a year from now, right? And he says that and back they go, what about 10 million? And he calls me, he's like, they just offered me 10 million. I'm like, tell him no. Tell him you are building a billion dollar company and that is what you are shooting for. And it would be great to have them for, along for the ride as a customer, but you know where you want to go. Next call is with the CEO of a public company, a big public company saying, hey, to my client, I'm sure we can work something out. And are you open to having the discussion? Yes, we're open to have the discussion, he says. So he calls me and I said, okay, we're going to set up a discussion and I already know who the best investment banker is in the world to sell your business. And this is a business in the United States. The best investment banker is in London for him, right? And I didn't run a process. I already knew exactly who to go to and you'll see why. So I said, let's set up a Zoom. We've got their corporate development team, all the screens lighting up and we wait and I bring on Georgios Markakis from London, our future of work, HR tech, very specific around payroll, steps in and he says, hey, Eric. And you could just see the buyers go, oh no, right? Like it's Georgios. And I will paraphrase, but I love this story because it's emblematic of the majority of our transactions. He already knows the buyer. He sold a business to him last month. He knows exactly why they want this company that they're not talking about. And he says, if this conversation doesn't go well in 15 minutes, you know who I have to call. And that thread of instant competition to a public company was like, okay, let's, we're going to figure this out. So this client of ours is now looking at multi-generational wealth. I can't say the numbers. The earnout is just, he's hitting. It is amazing what is being created here. And it is all because of that insight that I wish I had on my first exit. He knew why they wanted this company and it wasn't clear. And he knew he could model it and prove to them why it was worth so much that they already knew. So I think that is one of our really fun stories that really kind of proves why the model really works. And frankly, how we took a founder who knew nothing about M&A and elevated him to say, you don't have to, you just have to understand the process and what you really want out of this transaction. And we will handle this for you. Todd, this is fantastic. If anyone wants to find out more information about you, your company, and if you have a maybe a tidbit going away piece of advice, for our audience, this is the time to share, but you know, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you, get in contact? Well, I would say going to exitwise.com. You can certainly learn about what we're trying to do for our fellow founders. And you can email me at Todd, T-O-D-D, at exitwise.com. The Kind of the greatest pleasure that I get is actually talking through what is that next move? And I love it because I don't have to be a salesperson, right? I am not trying to convince anybody to do anything. I just want to arm you with information. And so I would say that the advice I would give is I really do think founders should understand, try to understand the value of their business. And that is very difficult to do. They should try to understand it at different stages because if they are going to dilute themselves in some way by taking on capital that they think can get to the next stage, they should really understand what that is going to do to them personally. Does their ROI improve? How much risk are they going to take? Is Does it take five years to get exactly where you are today? And in most cases, it's like, yeah, I will elevate my valuation. I want to do this for the next five years. And maybe the answer is usually yes. But just understanding that making real decisions with real valuation data makes a lot of sense. And we're building a lot of technology around that to help founders learn that very quickly. So 
Today we do it very manually. Soon you will be able to do that right from our website and really excited to launch that. Fantastic. We're going to have that information in the show notes and for our audience out there. When I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm a mid-market investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital. Connect with me on my LinkedIn or go to the SiliconValleyPodcast.com where you can see this episode, our past episodes and what we're working on. So with that, Todd, fantastic episode. I love the advice you gave our audience. Please listen to this multiple times, but I just got to say, one more time. Thank you for being a guest on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thank you, Sean. Really an honor. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.